Well, I want to begin this morning with another question. Uh, and that is, have you ever felt as though things are out of control? It's not difficult at the moment, is it? Every time you turn on the television and see the latest Brexit developments, it feels like things are out of control. Maybe like me, you watched Comic Relief a few weeks ago. Uh, And as you saw the scale of the need around the world, we just heard a bit about sharing lives just in this area, but around the world, it, it can sometimes feel like things are out of control. Maybe it's closer to home, a fractured relationship, a a difficult situation. Things at the moment just feel out of control. If you've been with us in our morning services, you'll know that we're looking at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The last few days and hours of the life of the Lord Jesus on the earth. And as the events unfold, I don't think it's hard for us to imagine the disciples feeling as though things have got out of control. It wasn't long ago that they were sitting, listening to Jesus' teaching. They were witnessing his amazing miracles. They were learning about the kingdom of God. But now, as we've just heard read, Jesus has been betrayed He's arrested and brought in the night before some religious leaders who are intent on having him killed. In the morning, he'll be led away to face trial before the Roman governor. And so for the disciples and for us reading Matthew's gospel, it would be easy to think that things are just spiraling out of control. That Jesus is at the mercy of some murderous priests and cowardly friends. But in our passage this morning, Matthew, the author, he he wants us to see that that just isn't the case. He wants us to see that despite appearances, Jesus remains in complete control of everything that is happening to him. And and knowing that should, should shape the way that we view the events that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Jesus remains in control. We finished at a dramatic moment last week. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying, the disciples were sleeping, and then in verse 46, Jesus says, Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And from this point, things are going to just seem to get worse and worse and worse for Jesus. Verse 47, Judas arrives in the garden, and with him is a mob, a crowd with swords and clubs. They've cornered Jesus at night. No crowds watching this time. They think they have Jesus at their mercy. And then Judas, the once friend, now betrayer, moves in to identify Jesus. How does he do that? Verse 49, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. What a signal to arrange a betrayal. Culturally speaking, a kiss was a normal greeting, a sign of friendship, affection, trust. But here Judas uses it to betray a friend. And straight away, we mustn't miss how awful this is for Jesus. We all know the pain 
of a broken promise. The awful feeling of being let down by a friend, even if they didn't really mean to. But here we see the deliberate planned betrayal of a friend. Judas handing Jesus over to suffering and death, all for the price of a few silver coins. And he does it with a kiss. It's degrading, it's ugly, but notice it's not a surprise to Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. Judas's actions are not a surprise to Jesus. Remember his prediction, if you can, back in verse 20. He was sitting with his disciples and he said to them, one of you is going to betray me. One who sits here with me, one of my friends, will betray me. And so as bleak as things look, Matthew wants us to remember that Jesus is in control. Despite appearances, he's not at the mercy of the mob. He's not Judas's helpless victim. Now, he remains in control. And that's made even more explicit in what happens next. Verse 50, the mob moves in to seize Jesus. But then one of the disciples lashes out with a sword. John's Gospel tells us that's Peter. And so here's the one who made that bold claim, Jesus, I will die with you. Now trying to defend his friend. Now trying to put a stop to all this awfulness that is happening. But Jesus has none of it. He has no intention of fighting his way out of the situation. And so he puts a stop to Peter's violence. And then comes this key verse. A key verse in this whole section of Matthew. A verse that should shape the way we view everything we're going to read. Verse 53. Jesus says to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus says, I could stop this at any moment. I am in complete control. And as I say, that should shape all that we're going to see in the next few chapters, all that we're going to see in the next few weeks. Through all the trials, all the beatings, all the mocking, eventually the execution, Jesus is in control. He is choosing to go through every single moment of his ordeal. He says, do you think I cannot call on my father And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? As we began to see last week, this is all happening according to the plan. You can come along this evening as we look at Isaiah 53 and see how some of that plan is laid out for us 700 years before these events. Jesus says, this is happening according to my plan. There is not a moment he's not choosing to go ahead in obedience to his father, in obedience to the plan. Jesus is in control. And he remains in control despite human wickedness. Despite human wickedness. Verse 57, the scene moves on as Jesus is dragged to the house of the high priest Caiaphas where the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, they gather together in the night 
to interrogate their prisoner. And it's not that they're figuring out what to do with Jesus. No, no, they decided that long ago. Back at the start of chapter 26, verse 3, they got together, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and have him killed. The religious leaders, they've already decided the outcome. They're, they're not trying to work out what to do. Now, in this shady nighttime meeting, they're trying to work out how to do it, how to get the job done. You see, the Sanhedrin, as powerful as they are, they have no power to put a man to death. That was up to the Romans. And so before they could take Jesus to Pilate, to the Roman governor, they need to get their story straight. They need to figure out what they're going to say. But, as we see, this seems like it's harder than they thought it would be. Verse 59, the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. In order to convince the Romans uh, to pay the blindest bit of attention to this person, Jesus, they need to have something on him, something that will stick. But they're struggling. And notice, as they look for false evidence, as they try and find false witnesses, false repeated for us, these people aren't interested in the truth. They're just interested in getting rid of Jesus. It takes some time. But then end of verse 60, finally, some people come forward and accuse Jesus. Look what they accuse him of in verse 61. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. It's a charge that comes at two levels. Level one is pretty serious in itself, destroying the temple. This is an attack on the heart, the center of Jewish religion and identity. It's a serious charge. Uh, but there's more to it because, well, because the prophet Zechariah said that it would be God's Messiah, God's King, who would be the one to rebuild God's temple. And so here, at another level, is a claim to be the Messiah. It's a serious charge. And so the high priest presses Jesus. Verse 62, aren't you going to give an answer, Jesus? What do you have to say to this? But verse 63, Jesus remains silent. He won't defend himself. He, he just simply lets things proceed. That's not good enough for Caiaphas. He needs a confession before he can go to the Romans. And so he puts Jesus under oath. Verse 63, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now Jesus must answer. He has to respond. He's under oath. And what he says next is astounding. Jesus answers Caiaphas, and he answers in a way that shows him and shows us where true power is. He shows who's really in charge. Verse 64, you have said so, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a huge claim to power. 
In the darkness of the high priest's house, surrounded by people who want him dead, Jesus finally reveals his hand. He's the Son of Man. He's the one that Daniel spoke about, the one that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Go back online and listen to that sermon because it fills out this picture of who the Son of Man is. The one who would have all authority over all people, over all nations. The one who has all power, all dominion, all glory. The King of Kings. You see, as we read, it it might seem like the Sanhedrin are powerful. It might seem like they are the ones in control. But Jesus reminds them, and he reminds us where true power is. He reminds us he is the one in control. He is the judge, not this mock court. He's the true king. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the mighty one. The right hand of God, the one who will one day come and judge the world. One day all people will bow before this man. And so despite human wickedness, despite the wickedness of these religious men who would use their power, as small as it is, to put aside truth and try and have an innocent man put to death, despite that wickedness, Jesus says, I'm in control. In the midst of all the false accusations, the the hitting and the spitting and the threats that come in the next few verses, Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. I'm in control. And that has huge implications for each one of us here this morning. It has big implications because it means that we need to see that Jesus is not like Donald Trump. I'm sure you already knew that, but Jesus is not like Donald Trump. From the moment that Trump began his campaign, he divided people's opinion. He has divided people's opinion like no other politician. Some people love him. Other people can't stand him. And so whether you're interested in politics or not, you probably this morning have a view of Trump, a judgment of him. But the thing is, here in the UK, that judgment, that view, it doesn't really matter. We're thousands of miles away. We don't vote in the US election. Trump won't be the leader of this country. And so we might have a view, but in the end, that view doesn't really matter. It doesn't have any significance to us. It doesn't affect our lives. And there will be some here this morning who think the same is true when it comes to Jesus. We'll have all heard of Jesus. We're coming towards Easter. We'll have all heard these, these things before, the Easter story. I imagine we've all got a general opinion of Jesus, a judgment of who he is. But we might think, at the end of the day, like Trump, that view doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect my life in any way. What difference does it make? We're talking about a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a far-off place, in a far-off time. What difference does our view of Jesus really make? If that's you this morning, 
then I hope you can see, that, or begin to see here, that Jesus is not like Donald Trump. Because what you think of Jesus really does matter. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, what we think of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Matthew, the author of this gospel, says there is a right way and a wrong way to view Jesus. And the way we view him will have eternal consequences. He wants us to have a right view. Jesus is the Son of Man. But also, Matthew wants us to have a right view of human wickedness. You see, we live in a world where, just like in this scene here, Christians are persecuted. A world where wicked people still use their positions of power for evil. And it can be easy for us to think that things are out of control. As we hear about Christians persecuted around the world, or we experience increasing opposition here in the UK, or as we face the ridicule of our colleagues or our classmates, it can be tempting, can't it, to wonder whether we're on the right side, whether Jesus really is in control. If that's something that you have felt or, or feel from time to time, then Matthew 26 says, remember the reality. Remember the reality. Jesus is the Son of Man. Despite appearances, he sits on the throne of the universe. And one day the whole world will bow before him. He remains in control. Jesus remains in control despite human wickedness, and he remains in control despite human weakness. Look at verse 69, because there we see this, the scene shifts to Peter, who has been watching everything going on from a distance. And I wonder if you've noticed as we've gone through this last chapter or so, that Peter seems to be at the centre of all that's going on. Verse 33, it was Peter who claimed that when all others fall away, he would stand, he would die with Jesus. It was Peter in verse 52 who tried to put a stop to things with his sword. It was Peter in verse 58 who was the only one to follow on to see what would happen, what the outcome would be in this trial with Jesus. And if we went further back into Matthew's Gospel we would see that this is typical of this man, Peter. He's always at the heart of things. And so in many ways, he's the, the lead disciple, the representative disciple, which makes his denial all the more shocking. You see it there in verse 70. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times he denies the man he's come to love and follow. Despite his best intentions, despite those bold claims, when faced with the questions, not of a court, but of a servant girl, Peter repeatedly denies Jesus. His denial is repeated, and notice it's emphatic. At first he just says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, servant girl. I've not got a clue what you're on about. But then it ramps it up a bit. He, he's asked again and he denies with an oath. And then finally in verse 74, he calls down curses and swears, I don't know this man. 
When the moment comes, when Peter has the chance to stand with Jesus, we see that he utterly fails. Peter, the rock, shows that he is weak, shows that he's a failure. And so as we look at Peter this morning, I think we first need to be humbled. Humbled because as we saw last week, we need to recognize that we are weak. We need to see that we are all, like Peter, in desperate need of a saviour. You see, I think that's the big thing that Peter failed to understand up until this point. As he rebuked Jesus for talking about going to the cross back in chapter 16, and as he drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter failed to understand that he needed Jesus to die. More than anything else in the world, Peter needed Jesus to go to the cross. Because as he came to realize after the cock crowed, and as he fell to his knees and wept in verse 75, Peter was a failure. He was a man who couldn't live up to his own expectations, let alone God's expectations. And so he desperately needed Jesus to step in and rescue him. And there'll be some of us again here this morning who think they are perhaps good enough for God. Some who think they don't need Jesus to die for them. Some who think they can serve and stand with Jesus without first having been served by Jesus. But Peter's example should humble us. We need to recognise that the only way to be part of God's kingdom is to kneel with Peter at the foot of the cross and acknowledge that we are desperate sinners in desperate need of a saviour. Peter's example should humble us, but it should also reassure us. And that brings us back to this question of who's in control. Remember what Jesus said to Peter after Peter's bold claim back in verse 34. Peter said he would never abandon Jesus, he would die with Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus knew. Jesus knew right from the beginning that Peter would deny him. He knew that Peter, his closest friend, would fail him. And so just as the wickedness of the religious leaders is not beyond Jesus' control, not beyond his knowledge, neither is his friend's weakness. Jesus knew the very worst about Peter. And that, in that knowledge, he carries on towards the cross, towards the place where he will pay for that failure. And again, there might be some here this morning who think, if Jesus knew what I was really like, if he knew the things I've done this week, the things I've thought this week, there's no way he'd want anything to do with me. But Jesus does know. He knows you. Just as he knows Peter. 
He knows the ways you failed in the past. And he knows the ways you will fail in the future. And that is precisely why he goes to the cross. You see, we mustn't forget that Peter's denial here is set in the context of Jesus' trial, which will lead to his crucifixion. It's as Peter fails in this spectacular way that Jesus continues to make his way towards the cross to pay the price of that failure. And so Peter's example should reassure us because it should remind us that this is why Jesus came. To die for sinners like us. It should remind us that as Peter came to understand and then write in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So I hope you can see what Matthew wants us to see from this passage. He wants us to see that Jesus, he's not a pitiful man, betrayed by and abandoned by his friends. He's not a misunderstood teacher, helpless before the religious leaders. No, throughout these events, Matthew wants us to be clear. Jesus is in complete control. He is the Son of Man, the one with all power and authority, the one who could summon thousands of angels with a word. And so no person, no priest... No matter how powerful, can force Jesus to do anything that he does not want to do. And he's the one who knows what people will do even before they do it. He's the one who knows the hearts of his people. He knows their weakness, their failure, and their sin. And yet he chooses to die for them. To give his life for those who have rejected and abandoned him. This is how King Jesus uses his power, his authority, his control. He uses it to lay down his life for the wicked and the weak. To die for people like you and me. This is what Jesus chooses to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would help us have a right view of who Jesus is. Father, not a man at the mercy of priests and people who can't stand by him, but the Son of Man who chooses each and every moment of the cross. Father, thank you that he chooses those things so that we, failures, can be forgiven so that we can be saved by him. Father, we praise you for what Jesus chooses to do this morning. In his name, amen.